Romans chapter 2. If you're following along well, praise the Lord. If if you lose track sometimes in the in the series in Romans, you can listen to the last message. Romans really is a it's quite a progressive sort of letter. It, it it's premise upon premise upon premise. It's argument upon argument. So it's not always really super easy to to keep it all together in your mind and in your in your memory. Look at verse 32 of chapter 1. Paul is speaking to a uh, a theoretical person who it says in verse 32 knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only do the same, or the this this these ones not only do the same thing, but they approve of those who who practice them. The audience who is reading this letter, if you went to church in Rome, somebody would have read this entire letter to you on your day of worship. There's a broad spectrum of men and women and young people in this congregation here at the church in Rome. It could be a group pretty similar to us, I think, in some ways. There's a lot of different ages there, different sorts of religious backgrounds who are gathered to hear the preaching of God's Word and to grow in their knowledge of Christ to grow in their knowledge of the faith that, that I believe each one of you claims is your own faith in Christ. One of the great difficulties of believers really has, has always been is for a believer to actually become a learner and a disciple of Christ. Be a person who is actually in a in a student master relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But God's Spirit does press on men and women. He presses on you faithfully. He keeps pressing on you. Maybe when He first began pressing on you, you weren't even saved, maybe. And as the Lord goes after people. At times they come to saving faith later in life. But the Spirit presses in order that men might look and see in their own hearts a greater need of the Savior. Even if you've been converted, God's Spirit presses on you that you might see a greater need of the Savior. A greater need of salvation. The Lord Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount. Who was the first blessed one in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Don't you think there were some people listening to the Lord Jesus who were already kind of poor in spirit? I think so. 
I think some of those people listening to Christ were poor in spirit. The Lord Jesus told us about some of them in his ministry. The gospel writers told us about ones that the Lord Jesus came across. And, and just from their demeanor and the way the stories are told to us, we, we know some of these poor ones in spirit. The word poor is really about poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, poverty is a really powerful motivator, isn't it? Especially a couple hundred years ago. Today, poverty is a little bit of a different animal here in America. I think you all know. Poverty in America is kind of a strange reality. But poverty is a powerful motivator. And those who are actually genuinely poor often have to beg for work, or for money, or for food, or for clothes. Someone who's really poor has no choice but to ask somebody to give it to them. That's what poverty is. That's what poorness is. Somebody who is right on the edge of not being able to take care of themselves. And the poor in spirit, as the Lord preached that, the poor in spirit will beg for the resources that they don't have. And that they need. The poor in spirit is somebody who is so spiritually impoverished that they are driven to God himself to find the need of their soul met. Blessed are the poor in spirit because their poverty, their very poverty drives them to the only solution to their poverty. Romans 1 and 2, I really believe, is to compel you to become a beggar. Romans 1 and 2 is meant to expose your poverty. Chapter 2 begins with the second inexcusable. Read with me. We've read of of an inexcusable back up in one. He says it again. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, who judge. The judge in taking place, the the evaluating and the measuring taking place is is in regard to the verses from 18 to 32. 18 to 32 describe terrible people. Godless people, unrighteous people, terrible works and terrible deeds, awful things. It it lists off these things. And he begins, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. And it's in reference to these things that we've just been reading about there. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things, and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Keep reading. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness? Forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. 
But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, the Jew first, also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek for there is no impartiality with God. The reasoning that he is working on here, the the way chapter 2 has shifted the, the stage a little bit here, the reasoning brings a very, very sharp knife to the, to the surgeon's hand. The, the, the preacher, the, the spirit here is, is cutting deep into the soul of the men and women listening to the spirit here. The conscience that has been unmoved by the previous condemnation is being cut open here. There is a conscience who was able to read chapter 1 and was really unmoved. James Boyce said this little quote. He said, Left to ourselves, we use either our heathen lifestyle, our claims to moral superiority, or our religion to resist the true God. In other words, you could read chapter 1 there, and one of these three things that Boyce mentions here kind of makes you um, immune to the charge that has been made in chapter 1. Left to ourselves, we use either our heathen lifestyle or our claims to moral superiority or our religion to resist the true God. Now remember, in Paul's writing here, verse 18 Romans chapter 1, verse 18, is, is, is the driving force that Paul is, he is crucially concerned about your comprehension about the wrath of God. Chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed, is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Paul is earnestly concerned that you understand man by woman by man that the wrath of God is revealed. And then he begins unfolding his argument. He is warning the ungodly and the unrighteous of their danger. There there is an unprecedented measure of danger and peril that is that is in the way of these ungodly and unrighteous. And as we really deeply contemplate chapter one, one of the things that Paul 
convinces you of, if you read it carefully, is that you are already experiencing the wrath of God. The wrath of God are the the, the three things mentioned, and we've said this at least three weeks now, verse 24, verse 26, verse 28. They're, they're given up to uncleanness. They're given up to wild passions. They're given up to a debased mind. These, these are examples of God turning men over. Look at 2 Kings 17. I found this verse... And this, I, I felt, was quite helpful in giving us an understanding of, of what it means to be given over. Second Kings chapter 17. I'm only going to read two verses. You could read a longer passage here and, and, and bring it into a tiny bit more understanding. I'm only going to read, for time's sake, verses 22 and 23. I want you to get a, a, a picture of what it means to be given over. Second Kings chapter 17. Verse 22, listen to this. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam. This is one of the kings of Israel. And all the people of the nation basically were behaving, thinking, reacting, worshiping like their king, Jeroboam. That's what it says. So, walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They did not depart from them. Now listen. Until the Lord, or all the way until the time the Lord removed Israel out of his sight. As he had said by all his servants, the prophets, so Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria as it is to this day. And the thing that came to my mind when I was reading this passage was what would happen to your little child if you put your little child out of your sight, now parents don't do that to little children. We don't do that to eight-year-olds and, and ten-year-olds and, and even fifteen-year-olds. If you did, if you put your eight-year-old out of sight, and you went to the other side of the field, the other side of the, what would happen to the eight-year-old? They'd probably kill themselves. What does an unattended eight-year-old do? They do whatever they want. Are they wise? No. I mean, no offense, but they're stupid. Ten-year-olds are stupid. Fifteen-year-olds are stupid. That's why you don't rent an apartment for your 15-year-old and let them live on their own. Right? No offense, Trinity. The, the, the fact is, is God has given us parents. And even when you're in your 20s and in your 30s, if, if you have a right relationship to your parents, your parents will gently and graciously, hopefully, give counsel to your life and, and help you stay on a right road. The problem is, is most young people don't want their parents telling them anything to do. Most young people insist on their right to govern their own lives. Do you see what is in view here in, in Israel? As the nation of Israel is, is just wallowing in the sins of Jeroboam. God puts them out of their sight. What does that mean to be out of his sight? What does it mean to be out of earshot and your father is unable to say, get away from the road? What does it mean when, when you cannot hear him say that anymore because you are too far away? Prodigals do this. 
young people and old people who wander away from God, they go and they do their own thing. Prodigals wander away and God is giving them over while they are wandering away. What happens to people when they're disconnected from God like this? What happens? They get lost. They get worse. They, they waste their money. They become sexually corrupt and, and, and maybe have relationships with many, many people. They waste their money. They waste their lives. They waste their mental skills and talents and abilities. So when, when we're reading 24, 26, 28, God gives them over, we're looking at a people who are pushing on various boundaries that God has put around their lives, and he gives them over. And we get this idea that, that men are abandoned to themselves at these various points in Paul's teaching in chapter 1. And then... When, when the young man who is the prodigal, or maybe it was you, or maybe it was me when I was 20, we, we get to a place and we're realizing, what do I do when I'm totally disconnected and out of touch with God? What do I do when I'm really on my own? What do I do under my own government? I think this idea of, of being put out of God's sight in, in kings is such a great picture to show us what, what we're meant to see here. We are experiencing the wrath of God when we are in that place, aren't we? We might even think we're happy. You might be happy. For me, I, I would get drunk on Thursday and Friday and Saturday nights when I was out there on the end of my rope. And I thought it was great. I thought it was fun. Wasting my life. Having my own way. Experiencing my own free will. Out of the sight of God. We are experiencing His wrath. Now what does it mean if a person stays there? What does it mean to just live in the wrath of God? It means lostness. Utter lostness and damnation. That's what it means. So... While this wrath is being revealed, it is also progressing and developing. As we experience the wrath of God, as men for centuries experience the wrath of God, it grows, it increases, it is destructive in its nature. It turns the most noble creature in the creation into the basest thing in the creation. There is nothing more sad and disgusting than a drug-addicted, sex-addicted, homeless person living under a bridge in some poor place in the country. There is nothing sadder than that. Now, that never happens overnight. There is a progression as people go deeper and deeper and deeper and farther and farther and farther away from the constraints of God's grace. It is progressing and it is developing men becoming more and more unclean, more and more vile, more and more reprobate. This is what is being described in chapter 1, and then chapter 2 gets to in chapter 2, verse 5. Look at how he develops. Look at how it progresses in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness, 
and impenitent heart you're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Who will render to each according to his deeds? God's wrath comes. The wrath of God comes. And you are the one the wrath of God is coming to. This is who Romans 1 and 2 is speaking to. Which you? Who you? And this is the challenging thing in Romans 1 and 2 in the first half of 3. Every you. Every single you is who the wrath of God comes for. You can judge the wrongdoers. You can judge wrongdoings and wrongdoers, but you are blind to your own guilt. This is the one that God in His grace and in His wisdom presses on in in chapter 2. I'm trying to bring home the point Who is this you? David is a great example of this. You're going to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Churches all have people in them who will read Romans chapter 1. And like I said two weeks ago, they say, those guys are bad. And Paul, you know, it, it occurred to me. See what you think of this. I kind of wonder if Paul is that guy. So when he begins what he's saying in chapter 2, he's the kind of guy who would have read chapter 1 and thought, what horrible godless, awful, pagan people. Paul is the kind of guy who would have read chapter 1 and and completely seen himself isolated from such baseness. He doesn't say that in here, but it, 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 it dawned on me, this is who Paul is, I think. I kind of think this is who Paul is talking about. Second Samuel chapter 12 is a very similar example. This is such a great story. I'm going to read it fairly quickly. Read with me so you can follow the, the story. You can hear what's going on. Second Samuel chapter 12. King David had seen Bathsheba on the roof in the house next door, thought she was attractive, wanted her, asked her to come to his house, slept with her. She got pregnant. She told him, David, I got pregnant. David arranges for her husband's death. So her husband, who was a faithful, great general and her fighter in his army, he gets killed in battle. David's happy, solved his little problem. Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, who is uh, David's uh, Basically, David's pastor. He's the prophet. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nursed. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup 
and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Did you follow the story? Pretty easy to understand. How many sheep does a rich man have? Maybe a thousand. How many sheep does the poor man have? One. How much does the poor man love the sheep he's been raising? Like a kid. It's precious to him, like a puppy. The rich man takes it from him and serves it to his guest. And David's anger was greatly aroused against the man that Nathan is telling about. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Is David's heart right? David's heart is right. David has a great heart for justice and fairness. David is a great king. Don't get me wrong. I love David. I would serve David. Nathan said to David, you are the man that says the Lord God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The inexcusable man is in the shoes that David found himself. David was initially um, indignant, wasn't he? David was rightly indignant at, at hearing the story. What was his problem? Well, he was like these people that the Spirit is revealing to us in Romans. Chapter 1, verse 20. Ends saying they are without excuse. Who? Well, the men who wouldn't acknowledge him as God. The men who would not give thanks to God. They had seen what there is to see of him in the creation. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you are inexcusable. Romans chapter 2, verse 15. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts. Accusing or else excusing. We're seeing that there is a judge present in the heart of men that is judging them. 
This is the, 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 the third reference to the fact that they are inexcusable. There's no excuse. This is what men know. This is what God has shown them. They are without excuse. God reveals inexcusableness that is already experienced in the world. His wrath is already at work in the world. We witness in ourselves and in the world around us. Religious and moral and social chaos. We see it in the world all around us. Chaos in the churches and in the nations and in the world. Wrath revealed from heaven against ungodliness. The wrath is twofold. Take note of what the wrath is. The wrath is twofold. It's uncleanness. Vile passions and reprobate minds. It's very clear from what we read in chapter 1. God's wrath is... See, if God didn't remove men from his presence, then they wouldn't increase in any of those things. His wrath is, is being slowly expanded and given out to them. And so we see the uncleanness and the vile passions and the reprobate minds. There's no lack of proof that God has removed his restraint from men that would keep them clean. But uncleanness increases. Vileness increases. Depravity increases. And two, we have also witnessed and read about and watched catastrophe and war and plague and famine from almost the beginning of time. All of these things are examples of the wrath of God in my mind. Let me, let me show you what I mean by that. Some people tend to, to say or to teach, oh, these, these things don't indicate the wrath of God. These things don't indicate the, the judgment of God. But I think God's wrath is regularly manifest to us in violent and intangible ways so that men would fear God, so that men would turn to God. They would see examples of his power and of his judgment, and they, they might turn. Look at Luke 13. Luke 13, I'm going to read you verses 1 to 5. Bad things happen so that you might seek God. Listen to how this is taught to us in Luke 13. It says, There were men present at that season, some who told him, that's the Lord Jesus, told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. In other words, Pilate, who is the governor in the region, for some reason places his ire, his, his animosity against a certain people, kills them, takes their blood from them, takes that blood and mixes it with the sacrifices that are being made. A horrible, horrible thing for the governor to have done to mock their sacrifices, to abuse the people, to terrorize these people, right? A horrible thing taking place. And Jesus answered, and, and he, he asked this question in verse 2. He says, do you suppose the Galileans' 
those ones who were killed and their blood was abused in this way, do you, do you suppose they were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans? And those guys were pondering this question. Do you think that's why they died such a horrible death? Is because they were such horrible sinners? That's kind of the thrust of the question. Is this why they were allowed to die? Is this why this terrible thing happened? Because they were terribly bad people? Why did this horrible thing happen? Why does this evil thing take place? Listen to the answer. I tell you, verse 3, no. But unless you repent, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He tells the same story about another incident, verse 4. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You see, the Jews in Jesus' day saw these disasters, experienced these disasters, felt there was a one-to-one correlation with the sinfulness of the people and the disaster on whom it fell. One-to-one correlation. Bad things happen to bad people. This is the worldview being felt there. What is Jesus' response to that philosophy? What does Jesus teach them about this? He says, you guys don't understand. The entire nation is guilty of sin. And unless everybody, anybody, would repent, you'll die the same way. You'll die a miserable death and go to hell. That's the point Jesus is making. He's not seeing some people more worthy of a disaster and others less worthy of a disaster. He's saying disasters happen, judgments happen. Why? So that men might fear God and repent and put their hope and their trust in Him. But excuse does the typical Jew make when confronted with the judgments of disaster? Well, they were pretty bad. God took their lives. And Jesus says, you all deserve the same judgment. You must reconcile with God for your guilt before the same thing happens to you or before it's too late. So let's ponder the reality of the inexcusable. Let's ponder the reality of the inexcusable. Chapter 1 ends listing the deeds and the works and the activities of the reprobate. Chapter 1 ended telling us what kinds of things those things are. And 2 begins saying you who judge are guilty of doing the same things. You're guilty of doing the things that you judge are unworthy. This is a hard charge. It's actually a a pretty difficult charge for people to receive. But the point is, is you are guilty of those same things, you who judge, and this means you are also without an excuse. You don't have an excuse. Why are we worried about the excuse? Why is the excuse so crucial? Because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And as the wrath comes like a tsunami, the one who is saying, I've got an excuse, is is sitting there holding an umbrella over his head from the tsunami. 
What happens when the tsunami hits a guy with an umbrella? He's destroyed. He's crushed. See, the men standing under their excuse have no idea how impotent their excuses. So Paul is saying, look, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and you are the one it is coming against. You are the ungodly. You are the unrighteous. And most men will not believe him. Paul is horribly concerned about people's misperception of the wrath of God. And the Spirit is, by these illustrations and, and words and, and phrases, He is redefining your perspective of right, your perspective of excuse. He's changing. He's putting the words for you to evaluate and for you to decide, do I believe this is true or not? The, the Spirit is wanting you to see instead what is right before God, not what is right before you. What's right before God? What really matters? And God is warning men. He is warning them. This is a picture of His grace. I don't know how many times we've said this so far. God's grace warns the knucklehead standing there with His umbrella. It ain't going to work. It is His grace. He warns them. He tells them kindly. They're standing there in the light of their own self-approval as the tsunami rips across the sea and is ready to hit the sand. So how do we accept the charge? You who judge do the same things. How are we to accept this charge? We're going to consider in two lines of argument. Number one, you view righteousness through your own eyes instead of a true understanding of God's righteousness and holiness. Now, many, if not most Christians, aren't 100% guilty of this, but this is where the first problem lies, is people understanding holiness and righteousness through their own lens. So this is the first one we're going to consider. The second one is, is that you wrongly understand how mildly immoral things equate to a full charge of reprobate. People don't rightly understand that their little offenses, their little sins are equal to an entire breaking of God's law. That's the second thing we're going to consider. The standards of God are very, very simply summarized in Exodus 20. What's in Exodus 20? Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are in Exodus 20. And then following Exodus 20, we're explained, we were taught the ways of sacrifice, the priestly intercession, feasting, and various disciplines that are taught to the nation. Offerings are prescribed, and men and women are to seek the Lord for forgiveness, doing various things. And what is less explicit but present, even there in the Torah, even there in those five books of Moses, and then more clearly and fully taught by Christ, is that each law of God reveals an entire area 
of God's holiness and righteousness and or man's ungodliness. In other words, men and women will regularly be guilty of breaking the main laws. There's 10 of them. And men and women will regularly break, obviously, some or one of these 10 laws. Or to break laws that we might just call branches of these laws. Let me explain. Adultery is prohibited in the seventh commandment. It's one of the ten commandments. You shall not commit adultery. Okay? The Lord Jesus in Matthew 5, 28, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you, but this, this is an example of root and branch. Okay? The root law, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now listen to me read Matthew 5:28. Let us say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The root law is sleeping with somebody else's spouse. God prohibits that. But the Lord Jesus says this other offense is the same thing. You see how there are Roots and branches to all ten of the commandments? Our Lord said that the attracted eye, the momentary thought or desire, is to be a breaker of the seventh commandment. And so we we begin to realize, if if you would ponder this this afternoon, or if you've pondered it before, you you realize that ethics and morals are deeply tied to the commandments. There's not ten rules to holy living. There's thousands of them. Because you are a very creative rule breaker, and Satan is a very clever tempter. There, there, There are so many ways to break the Ten Commandments. It's appalling when you realize how dark and devious your own heart is. It is repulsive to me to realize what a horrendous adulterer I am. If your imagination, have you ever had, I compared it to something like sniper fire before. You'll be doing something or talking with someone and and a thought can come into your head that is so off subject, so off circumstance, you will be standing there thinking, where in the world did that come from? There are other kinds of thoughts you have that you just sit there and and, and ponder on and, and meditate on. But these things, they didn't come from someone who isn't you. They came from you. And the Lord Jesus says, even the, the momentary thing is adultery. You, you've committed the sin of, of adultery. So if we look at the laws and the commandments, we, we would realize, if we look at them honestly, that we're a breaker of all of them. All of them. Do some sexual sins offend you while others taking place in your heart or your mind just seem a little more normal? Are some sexual offenses appalling and and egregious to you while some others just seem like 
regular to you? I think that's probably true. Is lust for someone of the opposite sex a wrong other than adultery or theft? You realize that uh, adultery and fornication also falls under the sin of theft. When you have somebody who is not your spouse, you're taking somebody else's spouse, even if you're kids. If a 15-year-old sleeping with a 15-year-old, that's somebody else's spouse. You're not allowed to have them. It's theft. Men are horrible lawbreakers. When a pedophile lusts, is it, or let me say, it is a more perverse form of the same sin, but it's the same sin. A pedophile's sin is the same sin. There are other permutations that, that you could take this, and I believe you would deduce this. When, when you realize that there is a main thing and then there are branches to these things, you participating in the branch over here in your thought life is breaking the same law that this person over here in this branch is doing in reality. This is God's holiness. This is God's righteousness. And if men will see themselves in that light, how do you see yourself? A horrible lawbreaker. An embarrassed lawbreaker. A shamed lawbreaker. When you see yourself in this light, you want to say, that cannot possibly be me. I would never do that. And praise God, there are many of those things that you would never do. But your, your mind is over here and other men's minds are over here and there are more massive degrees of these things than others. When we look at these laws, you and I realize that, that there are some kinds of murder that we consider to be revenge and, and just murder. You, you and I were trained. I was in the 80s watching TV shows and cowboy movies. If you kill the bad guy, just revenge, then that was good. But a guy who kills his wife and his kid is a horrible, awful murderer, right? You see, our, our, our mind has been trained by this world to see dark things in good light. Do you see how that's worked on our hearts? Do you see that? God's Spirit is speaking to men and women who see themselves self-justified. They see themselves in a different light. So they're... What we looked at in this illustration is, is God's holiness in regards to the, even just the Ten Commandments alone is, is far more severe than your natural ability to weigh those things out. And the reality is, is if you learn to see yourself under the light of God's holiness, you're not holy. You're not. Now, the second avenue I wanted to think about with you just for a moment is... In your areas of offense and inexcusable, yours, men's, generally are perceived in, in isolation. 
So when, when a man or a woman, when you sin in a certain way, you, you lose your temper, you, you swear, you, you do your thing, you still generally see yourself as good and approvable. But what the Spirit is teaching you to see and what you must learn to see is that you, it, it doesn't give you an out. It doesn't make you good if you only swear in certain circumstances or if you sort of swear in your head and it doesn't come out of your mouth. God's rule of right and good, we'll call it the, the law, God's law is a complete picture of his holiness. And men see their mess-ups, and that word is on purpose. We, we like to say mess-up. I, I messed up. Because if you use a different word, it's a little bit too much guilt associated with it if you use the word sin. I messed up. They will see their failures in a, in a gracious light because usually there's a good reason for it. Usually your departure from perfect righteousness had an excuse. And, and husbands and wives may sometimes have white Lies that they allow for one another. Sometimes there are there are certain lies in our culture that we think are appropriate and proper. So, do you like my new dress? Yeah. And if the husband says no, that's a really ugly dress. Oh, man, that's just going to ruin the whole week. Yeah. <laughs> and so men can make a little adjustment in the whole situation and say, you know, I'm, I'm so glad you love that dress. Or I, I don't know how you, you get around it. But do you see how men and women, all of you, will dance in the gray area of perfect honesty and truthfulness, right? You will. It's, it's how we function. That means you're a liar, though, right? It is a lie if if you do something like that. And, and we might reason that lying is better than the ensuing embarrassment or conflict. And you're only guilty of kind lies. The kind of lies you say are, are just from the kindness of your heart. And as I said a moment ago, we will take these departures from, from holiness and righteousness and, and, and find this kind of justification for them and then see ourselves and understand ourselves. I'm a pretty good person. I'm not a murderer. I don't lie to steal money from the bank and do real bad things. I, my, my lies are they're good ones. So, the Lord Jesus, Paul, and James would speak to something like this. James 2, 8 to 11 is where, I think you already know where we're going here, but James 2, 8 to 11, we need to look at, just so you can see this, in this second vein, when, when you or I sort of break a law in our own little way and, and find it, an acceptable kind of breaking, this does not stand up before God. It means you are inexcusable. James 2.8 says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin 
and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble at one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. That's the way I referred to it to you a moment ago. The law. Your little breaking of little points of the law means you have broken the law. You are without excuse. And this teaching is devastating. The point of you hearing and understanding and believing what has been explained in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2 is devastating. It is meant to devastate you. It is meant for you to see yourself in a very dim light. You are not to read this and study this and pat yourself on the back and say, I'm a pretty good person. You are to read this and you are to be broken hearted. That I, I, I refer to this already did. You are the most noble creature in the creation. You have been created in the image of God and yet your thoughts and your words and your actions defame him every day. And that should shame you. It should make you feel guilty. It should make you realize you are poor, impoverished. Why? Because your only hope for righteousness does not come from you. Righteousness is not in you. The wrath of God is coming against the unrighteous. Paul is concerned that you would measure yourself in your golden light, in your Facebook page, in your self-praises. And he's saying, look, this tsunami is coming and it is made of the holy fire of God. And no man will stand when this hits unless you possess perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness. And this should make you feel impoverished. Where do we get that, God? How does a man get that? How is that possible to have? He's, there's another argument here in Romans 2. We're going to skip it because I've gone too long. But I just want you to realize that there is no man or woman exempt in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2. That's why chapter 3 says, all are guilty and fall short of the glory of God. You are guilty and fall short of the glory of God. Your hope, your fireproof, tsunami-proof hope is Christ. If you stand in, in Christ, you are safe. You do stand. You have the sound hope of eternal life in Christ and in Christ alone. But that doesn't mean you go through your life sinning like it doesn't matter. Paul's going to cut you off at the knees very soon on that one too. Shall we continue in sin? That grace should abound. May it never be, he says. 
we who have been created in the image of God and in the line of the first Adam are guilty in our sins and trespasses. We are guilty and the wrath of God is coming to its end. There is a day of wrath that comes. And so for that reason, we stand as close to the Savior as we can. We are constantly full of gratitude and thanks to the Savior who took the wrath of God. You realize the Lord Jesus took the wrath for those men and women who did not want it taken? You realize that's how you stand in Christ? Christ took your wrath. It's glorious. It's glorious. But it doesn't mean you're not a sinner. It makes your gratitude, it makes your thankfulness so deep, profoundly grateful as we realize our guilt and what has been done to rescue us from our sin. I hope you'll pray with me as we close in prayer. Oh, dear God, we love the gospel. It is your power to salvation because it reveals righteousness, dear God. Oh, how I pray, dear God, that these men and women would be tender worshipers today. Oh, God, help us to to see sin for what it is, Lord. Help us to fully and humbly, gratefully trust in the Lord Jesus. I pray these things in his precious name. Amen. You guys may be excused. Sorry we went a tiny bit long today.